Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so before we dive in today, before we jump into the, to the message, I, I really need to build out some of the perspectives of the structure that we've been working through. We're actually going to change views today. It's an important part uh, of, of what's to come, but, but you need to understand where we've been really to think about where we're going. And, and so as we've done this church health series, not because we're necessarily unhealthy, but because we're trying to grow in health, we're always trying to become stronger, more more mature believers trying to be healthier Christians. As, as we're doing that, we've recognized, we've called it out over and over that church health really finds its root in God. In fact, we couldn't be a church, we couldn't have church health at all if God hadn't first worked in us and made us a church. It finds its root in His work and in our obedient response to Him. We are not healthy, we are not maturing uh, healthy Christians if we're not living in obedience and walking in light of what he's done in us. And so that's both perspectives. And that's really what we've been working through as we've built out this perspective in First Peter. First Peter gives us this view, this, this beautiful passage that it opens with, gives us this view of the doctrine of salvation that, that is it's just it's majestic and it's powerful and it points it all to God. The first, the first several verses, the first 13 or so verses are all about His work, about what He has done on our behalf. And, and we've spent the last several weeks working out this robust and this full, this full view of, of the gospel doctrine, of the work that God has done in us to, to change us and make us new. And from that gospel doctrine, within that gospel doctrine, we have established what, what I'm calling a gospel identity. So, so gospel doctrine is not just these external set of teachings, these, these lists that we, can, that we can stand in front of and say, check, 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 okay, that's me, I'm, I'm a Christian. The, the reality is, is that gospel doctrine doesn't stop at the external. In fact, it's only really meaningful because it actually works into us and changes us. That's, that, that's the whole perspective that he builds out, is that we are not just a people who follow a set of rules. We are a people who have been born again, who have this new life, who have been regenerated, and our nature has been changed. We're no longer what we were. We are a new person in Christ with a new future, with new opportunities, with new perspectives, with, with new purposes and, and new desires. These, these, all of these things, Peter shows us, working out of gospel doctrine that changes gospel identity, that builds in a new gospel identity. And, and to that point, that's really where we've worked to. But here's the thing, is that that is all very individual. It's very focused on, it could really just be me. But Matt didn't say it this time, but he said in the first service, God didn't come to just save a person. He didn't come to just save an individual. He came to save a people. One of the, I think one of the downfalls and one of the struggles that the, the American church in, in particular faces is that we no longer look at Christianity as a community thing. It's more of an individual thing. And, and we come and we take what we want and leave, we leave what we don't. And that's the way we approach the whole church experience. We're, we're consumers shopping in Walmart. I like that. I don't like that. And, and I don't need that. So I'll just take what I want and I'll go on about my business. I'll do my thing. And now I'm a Christian and I'm loving all of this stuff that's all about me. Well, that's not really good, solid gospel doctrine, is it? And that's not really us living in light of our new gospel identity either. 
You see, the truth is, and this is where we're kind of heading, and we'll be here over the next several weeks, is that gospel doctrine that gives way to this new gospel identity will result in a gospel community. Today, we're going to be focused on the family portion of that. In fact, if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to, if you've got your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and turn to the passage. It's going to be 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. It, it, it happens so naturally, so fluidly in this letter, though, and really truly in, the, in, the, in all the writings in the New Testament, that, that it could be said that if you don't have the end result of gospel community, you don't really have a, a solid and robust gospel doctrine. You could have everything about the cross and about the resurrection, but if that's all you got and it's all about you and it's all about saving you and all about giving you what you want and all about you getting what you feel like you deserve and need and, and now I'm set and I don't need anything else, then you're still missing part of the doctrine of the gospel. You're still missing part of the identity that he has given you because you're not simply a child alone. You're a child among children. The, the reality is, and I think that we'll see this as it builds out over the next several weeks, is that if we are preaching and proclaiming gospel doctrine and people are believing and trusting in the work of God on their behalf, they will find a new identity. But that identity will not be one of an individual. It will be one of many brothers and many sisters, one among many and I think we begin to see that happen naturally. In fact, as we read today, you'll see that, that Peter is still build, building out this perspective, this how to live the Christian life idea that we really started breaking out last week. But, but he changes. He, he changes and he moves from internal attitudes and, in, and motivational perspectives. He changes and begins to talk about what we do and how we interact. In fact, he begins to show us that the gospel community, the church that, that results out of the work of God in his son and through his son, Jesus Christ, the, the, the church that, that exists as a result of that is more than just an event that happens on a particular day of the week. It's more than a building. It's more than a group of people that you can hang out with from time to time that, that, you, can, that you can go sit down in their homes and have dinner with. It's more than a people that, that when you're in trouble that you can turn to and they'll meet your need. But the, the gospel community, the church, I think we begin to see is the family that God has placed us among. The, the family that he's put us in. That we might love them as fully passionate and fully devoted to them to serve them and see their needs met in the same way that he has loved us passionately and devotedly completely not holding anything back and it's it's from that perspective i think that peter begins to write these next words in this context read with me if you will we'll begin in verse 22 <clears throat> he says having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Now, I want to stop right there because I, I didn't do this in the first service and it, it made it harder for me to transition. I want you to see what that phrase means and how it connects to what he's already been doing. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, if we just take that at face value and just isolate that out of the text, and it would be very easy to see that we, we it'd be very easy to say and build this idea that, that we made ourselves salvation worthy, that we had done some work that had purified ourselves, and now we can stand before God and say, look at me, God, I'm finally ready, you can save me now. 
But that's not at all what he's saying. In fact, this verse, this, this line in this passage ties us back to the very work that Peter has been calling us to. In light of who God has made you, holy, adopted, and ransomed, all of these things, God has made you these things. He did this work on your behalf. Now you do this. You be holy because He is holy. You live like a child of God because He is your Father. You live like you have been bought out of slavery and have been made free. That's the idea. And now he says, coming along, he says, having purified your souls. See, having, having walked in this process, having followed and lived in light of who you now are, that's what he's saying, having lived in light of who you now are for a sincere brotherly love, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flowers of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And the word is the good news that was preached to you. Now I've been talking to you about gospel community, gospel identity, gospel gospel. Uh, doctrine, all of this, and it all adds up to this very point. You are these things because God's Word stands forever, and the Word that was preached to you is the good news. That is the Gospel. In the Greek, it's the same exact word. The Gospel bears this fruit. It does this work. We preach it. We believe it. We become new people because of it, and we are bound together in it. Gospel doctrine giving way to gospel identity Binding us together in gospel community. But as that work is happening, we see it over and over again. We are not just bumps on a log meant to sit here and soak in it. And it's just happening all around us and we're doing nothing. In fact, the reality is, is that this passage, as I pointed out, is tied, it's tied directly to, it's still an extension of his, his call to us to live in a certain way. That there, the, the how-tos that we talked about last week. How to live a Christian life. Do you remember them? If I gave you a test right now, how many of you could, could quote them? Raise your hand if you can quote them. Oh, come on. I wouldn't do that to you. I put them on the screen so that you can remember them. I couldn't remember them. I had to look them up. I'll just let, let you off the hook. He says first to put your hope fully in Jesus. This is how we do it every day before we even get out of bed, before we do a thing, before anything happens in front of us. Put your hope fully in Jesus. That means nothing else. That doesn't mean part of your hope goes in Jesus. That doesn't mean some of your hope, your full hope. And, and, and what that is is your trust, your belief. You believe Jesus completely for your future. We studied that last week. You can go back and listen to the to the, to the recording. It's, it's there for you. Put your hope fully in Jesus. Then he turns and he says, turn from sin so that you can live obediently. That's the second how-to. That's the second way that we live the Christian life. We, we look at sin. Well, that's sin. I, I can't have that. Well, that's Jesus. I've got to leave that and I've got to trust him. I've got to turn from that and I've got to trust him. I've got to quit pursuing that and I've got to pursue him. I've got to quit hoping in that and I've got to hope in him. And, and what we saw last week was that those two ideas, that's the, that's the breadth and width of the Christian life, believing in Jesus, hoping in him fully, 
and turning from those things that we hope, hope in instead of him. Those things that lead us away, those things that lead us astray, those things that keep us from, from hoping fully in him, we turn from them. That's belief in him and repentance. That is the Christian walk day in, day out. It's not first a list of rules and a certain, certain number of things that you've got to get right and a certain number of events that you've got to attend and a certain number of, of ways that you've got to serve. It's first and foremost, every day, day in, day out, moment by moment, believing in Jesus, repenting of sin, believing in Jesus, repenting of sin, repenting of sin, believing in Jesus, repenting of sin, believing in Jesus. It's always the same thing, over and over and over. That's how you live the Christian life, learning to trust Him more fully and turning from sin as you see it in your life. That's the constant process. But he gave us a third one. He says, conduct yourselves fearfully. That was the third how-to. And the idea there was, was that this fear is really directed by, to God. It's not fear of circumstance. It's not fear of difficulty in your life. It's not fear of man. It's a fear of God. He, he says, and he ties it to two different things. He tied it to the, to the fear of God because what, who God is and what he's capable of. Just like a child fears his father's discipline, we don't do things. We actually abstain from certain things, or we do certain things because we don't want to be disciplined. Discipline is never fun. You remember reading through Hebrews chapter 12 last week. It's never fun. It's never enjoyable. It always is difficult. It's something we have to endure. And so in a desire not to be disciplined, we abstain or we do certain things. But it's not just about quaking fear or being afraid of the discipline. It's also about revering him because he didn't just buy us with silver or gold he bought us out of slavery out of debt to sin he bought us out of that with the precious blood of christ so we fear the discipline but we revere the act in which he offered on our behalf and so that was that was the how-to's and now we come to another how-to he says love one another he says love them but do you see the distinction? See, there's a reason why we didn't handle this last week when we dealt with the rest of the how-tos. Do you see what's different about it? These first three are completely internal. They're completely about you. You don't need anyone else to do them. You can be a completely independent Christian, and if Christianity stops there, if that's the end of the teaching, then we don't need one another. But it doesn't stop there. In fact, his very first command to act outside of ourselves has not got anything to do with ourselves except that we are to love. We are to be the one doing it. We are to be the one acting in it. We are to be the ones committing it. And see, as he does this, as he breaks this all out, I, I want you to see what I, what I believe in, I can summarize in one point, and we'll just look at the components of that point for the remainder of the sermon. That point, that, that main idea, I think, that, that we can take from this, and I think that it's, to, to bring it into the context of our series, I would say that a healthy church is a family in Christ and has been given love for one another so they can give love to one another. So God has done a work to create a family, to give you a new identity, and he's installed in you, inserted in you, provided to you this love. And now, because of who you are, because of what he's done in you, because of the gospel, love. Do it. Enact what he's given you. Well, let's break that out, and let me just help you how I, how I got that out of the text and why I think we can summarize it in that way. 
We're going to look at three components of that point. The first one will be the family component. A healthy church is a family in Christ. Now, Peter doesn't use the word family, and he doesn't use any word that says family. There's no translation. It's not in English. It's not in Greek. And so I just want you to see there's, there's two ways that I think he demonstrates that God is not just creating a bunch of individuals, but he's creating and putting together a family. I want you to see that because I think it, it, it's there. I, well, I know it's there, and I, I'll show it to you. It's actually on both sides of the command to love. In verse 22, after he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, he says, having purified yourself, your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. It is a sincere familial love, a love and affection and concern that you would have for family members that you would have for, for those that, that you consider mother, father, brother, sister, a concern and a love, a, a primary type of love and concern. A, a, a love that's, that's built on the idea that you know that you're bound together, that you belong to one another, that you are connected more deeply than through some vocational uh, acquaintance or, or, or because of a location in which you live. You are bound together by something stronger, by something more intentional, more purposeful, more meaningful than some external factor. This is the kind of love that happens between people who know that they are bought to, or that they are bound together by blood. You, you've heard the term, blood is thicker than water. Why do, why do we even say things like that? Because we recognize that there's a primary connection, a, a purposeful and intentional connection to people who are the same lineage, who are the same heritage. And we recognize that. That's a normal way for us to think and for us to perceive. And he's applying this now and he's saying, this is yours in Christ. Having been converted and now pursuing Christ, this kind of familial love is given to you. It is the result of His work in you. It happens naturally. It happens as a result. You see, through the process of you striving to be holy, of you striving to work out the, the salvation that God has given you, striving to walk in alignment with that salvation, as you do that, you begin to become aware of a familial type of love and concern for the, for the others that are with you on this journey, for others that have been made new, that have been born again, who have been elected by the foreknowledge of God. You begin to develop this, this deep and sincere concern and affection, this love for them, this desire for their good. See, it's not just empty words. Hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. It goes beyond that. There's a real concern. How you doing? I'm good. Well, I know this is going on in your life, and I know you can't be good. How can I stand by you? How can I walk with you? How can I serve you? This familial concern. But, but it's not just before the command to love one another that we see that, that perspective of family developed. But in verse 23, right after the, the command to love one another, he says, he gives you a why you should do it. He says, since you have been born again. 
So love one another. Love one another deeply. Love one another earnestly. Exercise this sincere love for one another because you have been born again. It's the same language that he has been using since the very beginning of of, of the letter, since he first opened, and he says that God has caused you to be born again. That same language. That you have been given new life. That your life has just been birthed into you. That you've been woken up and now you are living a, a new being. But look at what he says the source of that life is. You have been born again. Not of what? Perishable seed. That's important. But of imperishable. Through the living and abiding word of God. And he draws on this imagery. He draws on this perspective that you have been given life, not by the normal way that life comes to human beings. He begins to draw on this imagery of a seed being planted and life coming forth. It happens in all of creation, right? A plant doesn't come up without a seed. A baby isn't born without first a seed being planted. There is a, a need for a seed in conception. That seed has to be planted. But there's a distinction. You see, it's not perishable seed. It's imperishable seed. It's different. It's distinct. And it gives a different life. You see, the reality is is that what he's saying is that as we come into this life, we have been born again of a different seed. We belong to a different family. In every case in in the created order, the seed determines what's going to happen. Right? It determines what's going to come out of the ground. You plant apple seeds, you get apple trees, and it bears apple fruit. Humans procreate. The seed is planted, and you get a human. You don't expect human parents to have dogs. It doesn't happen that way. I know, it's weird to think, but it doesn't. And here's the thing is that His abiding Word, His powerful, eternal, robust, and meaningful, effectual Word comes into us and it bears us new life. It gives us this new family. We belong to a whole new people. It's not the same kind of family that's built on, on bloodlines and heritage, but it's a family that's born out of the very Word of God. It's pure, eternal, holy word that just that, that, that changes us from the inside out. Peter draws from Isaiah. He points out in Isaiah, he's like, from Isaiah, he says, all flesh is like grass and, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You see, there's a distinction. There's something different. Where, 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 when you're born into a family, there's a point where you'll no longer be in that family. You might be remembered in that family, and there might be a place that they go and visit your body in that family, but you're no longer in that family because the flesh gives birth to flesh, and flesh ultimately dies. It withers, it fades. But this family, this family is a family that's eternal. That's born out of the living and powerful and eternal Word of God. The living and abiding Word of God. And it bears eternal, lasting, forever kind of fruit. So what that means, 
I know you're sitting there thinking, well, why does that even matter? Because what that means is, as you're sitting here with brothers and sisters in Christ, there's a reality that you will be with those brothers and sisters in Christ forever. This is an eternal family. Now, on the one hand, that may be very comfortable. I just consider what these people were dealing with. Consider the suffering that they were enduring. Some of them were dealing with harsh, horrific, uh, difficult persecution under the hands of Rome. Much like as we, as we look on, as, as believers in Christ, we look on and we look over to, to places in the Middle East where, where our brothers are, are being killed for what they believe. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are dying because of what they believe. Horrific and harsh punishment for faith, for, for living out this new identity. But not all of them in this time were, were experiencing that. In fact, we don't have any real indication that it extended beyond the, the real city of Rome. But that we do know that these people suffered. They lost family members. They dealt with social pressure. They dealt with difficulty because as they believed, as they believed, their lives were changed. The way they live changed. And it came into conflict with the culture around them. In fact, that's exactly what Peter calls them to continue to do and all the more. He doesn't say, okay, well, you're suffering, back off. He says, you're suffering, live more holy. Live more distinct. Make sure that people know you're a believer by how you live your life. You see, the reality is, is, that, is that one day, one, well, something's going to come, something's going to happen. You're going to come to a place where your faith is tested and, and you're going to have to live faithfully or you're going to have to deny it. It happens to the best of us. Anybody that believes at some point their faith will be tested and, and there comes this place, there comes this point where your faith will lead you to confrontation or conflict with the, with the fallen world around you. Listen, this is hopeful. God's family will outlast every family, even yours. Even if your family, you can trace their roots all the way back to the other side of the ocean. God's family will outlast your family. Brothers and sisters in Christ will forever be brothers and sisters in Christ because we will always be born again children of God. And that's hopeful. Because as we live our lives wholly unto Him, completely hoping in Him, and finding that it's not always acceptable in this world, you will never be alone. You will never have to stand by yourself if the gospel doctrine is at work shaping the gospel identity that people live in, that it bears fruit in the gospel community, you will never have to stand alone. You will be surrounded by brothers and sisters who love you, a place where you belong, a place where they can encourage you and strengthen you and embolden you and empower you and help you in your pursuit of holiness. You will never have to face that alone. That's comforting. But on the other hand, it, it might be worrisome. You're going to be with me forever. Yeah, I know, it took you a second to get that. You're going to be with me forever. Right? That guy's kind of weird. I don't know if I like everything he says. Truth is, he hurt my feelings, and he's never once apologized for it. 
if I've hurt your feelings and and you haven't let me know, I just I'm gonna say I'm sorry. But let me know and I'll I'll repent to your face. But but if I've never apologized and you're carrying an offense from me, then realize you're gonna have to look at this mug forever. Well, you've made me angry. I don't I'm just gonna find another church. There's no sense in leaving. We might as well work it out because I'm going to see you again. You get that? This is a forever family. In the realest and most sincere sense, we have been born of an imperishable seed that does not die. You and I have forever to love one another. Let's figure it out now, right? That's and, and the truth is, is the, the the beauty of this is is that is, as worrisome as it might be, God didn't just put together this family and think, oh, I hope they figured out. Otherwise, they are not going to get along. Does your family have trouble? I mean, if God hadn't prepared for this, this family would have all kinds of trouble, and we do. We do. That's why verses are in the Bible that say, "Forgive as you've been forgiven," because we have trouble. But that's the very reason it doesn't stop with God establishing a family. You see, the, the next part of our the next part of our point, a healthy church is a family in Christ and has been given love for one another. That's imperative. It's important. If we, if, if we don't get this, we, we're going to miss out on the beauty of what strengthens and what the backbone of this family is. We, we, we got to see this. So let's go back to verse 22. He says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for, for, this is the result, this is the, 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 the intent, this is the end goal for a sincere brotherly love. This is, this is what God does in us. He, he puts it in us. He makes it happen. John Gill points out, and it's one of the many commentaries, it's one of the many commentators I read from, he points out that it, this being the end result, it is, it is the evidence of our purification. You are not maturing as a believer. This, is, this seems to be his point. You are not maturing as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, if you are not sensing a love for your family. You can't have one without the other. You, you, you can't be saying, you, you can't in one hand say, I'm a Christian and I'm mature, but I can't stand Christians. I hate them all. Well, this would say, this would seem to say that, that if you're a maturing believer, if you're being purified, then you're going to gain a sincere brotherly love. So one of two things is going on. One, you're not a believer in Jesus. You've never really trusted him. Or two, you're still a baby in Jesus and you're not as mature as you think you are. See, here's, let me just say this, because if you're not a believer in Jesus, if you have never trusted Jesus for life, if you have not sensed the converting power of his word, if you have not seen the new life, then I'm, I, I, don't want, I don't want to ask you to love the church because it's not your responsibility. I want to call you to trust Jesus. And let him give you this, that then you might love the church. 
if you've never trusted Him, then all I can do from here on out for you is say, trust Him. Quit trusting the things of this world. Quit looking at the things that this world has to offer and thinking that your hope is in them. It will leave you wasting and wanting. You will not find the treasure at the end of that rainbow. Trust Him. If you have trusted in Jesus, then the call is not to just trust, but to mature. Study the Scripture. Read the Word. Dwell in the Word. Let the, let, let the Word dwell in you richly. Mature. Grow up. And it's, here's the idea. It's, it's not just me saying this. It's not just John Gill saying this. It seems to be that this is the perspective of Jesus in the entirety of the Bible. He says, speaking to the Jews in John chapter 5, verse 42, He says, But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. He's speaking to his own people. He's speaking to the people that are about to reject him and crucify him. And he says, I know you don't have the love of God in you. He's not saying you don't love. He's not saying that you don't experience this kind of emotion that's, that, 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 that we would call love in this world. Absolutely. You can love. But there's something missing. There's something distinctly different about a, a Christian's love. I know that you do not have the love of God within you. John 13, 35, now speaking to his disciples. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. You know the verse? If you love not the world, not your neighbor, one another. If you love one another. See, if we begin to love one another, that's, that's inherent. That's the mark of a disciple. That's the mark of a child of God. 1 John 2.9, whoever says he is in the light, that means whoever says he's a Christian, whoever says he's walking in the light, whoever says that he, he has life, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. The reality is, is that we can't have one without the other. When God gives you eternal life, when He bears new life in you, when He causes you to be born again by His imperishable seed, inherent to that new life is His love. His love is inherent. You don't get one without the other. The Scripture knows nothing of a Christian incapable of love. As an infant Christian, you may not be aware of it. You may not know how to handle it. That's why the call is to pursue holiness, to grow up in Christ, that you might then see the love that he's given you and then share the love that he has given you. I've got this beautiful story. I, I think it's a beautiful story, and I'm going to share it since I'm the one standing up here. It, it's, it's from a trip I took to China. We were walking in the mountains out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, absolutely, there was the closest city was hours away by by van in fact this particular trip if i remember right we had actually traveled by uh, plane then bus then van then boat and then foot that's how far out we were so the road ends and we keep going we're out in the middle of the mountains in the middle of nowhere but everywhere you go there's people in china you don't go someplace in china and there's not people there that's they're everywhere so everywhere you go there's people and and while we were there we were we were it was a group of about four or five of us all together and there was a girl there that had 
had, had lived there for a few months, just a couple of months, and she had begun to learn the language. I really believe God had given her this gift to, to, to speak the language. And we're there, and she's kind of sharing the gospel. We're walking along, and somebody will invite us into their house, and we'd share the gospel with them and, and, and hope and pray that they would profess faith. And if they did, then we would make sure that we marked the house on a GPS. We'd give the coordinates to somebody in the underground church. The underground church would then follow up and begin to disciple that person. But we could do it at very little risk, where the underground church there, if they get caught evangelizing other Chinese people, they can either be arrested, and sometimes the worst can happen, and they can be killed. It doesn't happen as much today, but it's still something that happens. And so that's what we were doing. And, and so we would walk along the street and just out in the middle of nowhere, out in these mountains. And, and we came to this covered bridge and there should be a picture behind me, this, this ornate covered bridge that's, that's, that's typical of the people in, in, that, in that area. It was the Dong people group. It's a minority group in China. And, and we came on this bridge. We walked on and we, we, we heard these women. These women were lining both sides. They had handmade goods. And anytime anybody walked across this bridge to cross this river or across this creek, <clears throat> they would they would accost them essentially. I mean, they got up and they got hey, we need you to buy this, buy it, buy it, buy it, buy it, right? And they, they can't speak English, so they're speaking to you in their own language. But as we walked onto the bridge that day, we heard them first sing. To this day, I can't remember the song that they were singing, but it was evident to us by the melody that it was a hymn. And we were blown away. I mean, we were about as far from somewhere as you could be and still be here on this planet. I mean, it was the middle of nowhere. And these women are singing a song like Because He Lives or, or, or uh, I can't remember exactly, but it was a hymn and it was noticeable and it was, it was familiar to every one of us and we knew it. In fact, we began to sing it alongside of them. It was powerful and it. But what happened in that moment is what made it memorable. It's, it's so memorable. And all the trips I've been on, all the countries I've been to, all the places that I have preached the gospel, all the, all the faces that I have looked at as I've, as I've shared what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf, this is one of the most memorable moments because in the middle of nowhere, completely isolated from everyone but us, we're, we're thinking we're all alone in this place. We're feeling lonely and, and, and just hoping that we, we, we come across people who will believe. And we find these believers. And immediately, and this wasn't just me, this was every one of us. We talked about it afterwards. Every one of us had an immediate connection, an immediate desire to know them more, to worship with them, to pray for them, to, to long to hear about what God was doing in their life, that we might together glorify God, that we might share in His goodness. We had this sincere, brotherly love for these women. We longed to know them and for them to know us. And I'm so thankful that we had this, this girl that had been there just a couple of months. She could speak so little Chinese, but God had gifted her and enabled her to, to share the gospel. It, it was crazy. But she began to speak to them and be able to talk to them. And we sat there and ended up being invited into a home and, and being able to sing together and praise God together and pray for needs together. One of the most precious moments in all of the short-term trips I've ever been on. One of the most precious memories I will ever hold. Because I saw what I believe Peter is pointing us to. See, it'd be great if I could stand up here and prop myself up and say that this is just me being a good dude and I just got it figured out. And because I'm such a good dude, I love those ladies. Wouldn't that be good? But I can't say that. 
You see, what I recognize is that I had a deep love for them, sincere love for them, because I know God is my Father, and they are my sisters. That was powerful, tangible, it was real. And as I sensed that love for them, I wanted to do exactly what Peter had commanded me to do. Not to sit and hold the love. Not and sit and just, oh man, this feels so good. I love it so much. I'm just so glad I get to experience But I really wanted to love them. You see, that brings us to the, the third perspective, the third point, the third idea out of our main point. A healthy church family in Christ has been given love for one another so that we can love one another. You know, so that we can give love to one another. Peter, back in verse 22, he transitions from saying that you've been given this, that you've been given this brotherly love. And in the language, in the, in the Greek, it is a noun. It is a thing. You know, you know what a noun is, right? You remember high school English. Maybe it's even grammar school. Noun is a person, place, or thing. It's a noun. You've been given this brotherly love. And the very next word, the very next word that gets translated love is a verb. He moves it from something you have to something you do. See, God's love is active. It doesn't sit still. It doesn't, it doesn't just sit stagnant. For it to flourish among us, we, must be, we mustn't be reservoirs holding it, but conduits through which it flows. God's love was never to come and sit on you and make you feel giddy and make you feel special. I hope it does that. But for you to know it fully, you got to start giving it away. You got to let it start flowing through you. You got to let it start moving through you. I, I really find this interesting because it, it, as Peter moves to this place, this, this place where internal action turns to external action, this place where, where the internal attitudes and motives of believing and repenting and fearing, where those attitudes, where those motivational factors begin to turn external, he doesn't say, now go get yours. This is how we know that men didn't write the Bible. Because if this was a plan for success, if this was a mode of success and a way to live successfully, to have a healthy, good life, man would have said, okay, now that you got these attitudes right, now go get yours. Take care of yourself. But instead he says something radically different. Love one another. Not just feel good about one another. Not just have some empty emotional thoughts about one another. We're going to deal with this more next week, but this is real. This is tangible. It's earnest, sincere, active love for one another. And notice, who is he telling us to love? In the context. In the context, it is clear that the primary love that you are to show is to the brothers and sisters in Christ. To your family. He doesn't tell you, go get loved by your family. He says, go and love your family. This means that when we have to choose to offend the world or to choose to offend our brother, we choose to offend the world that we might love our brother. 
And the truth is, whether we recognize this or not fully and completely, often, the best way we can love the world is by loving our brothers and sisters. There's a number of passages I could point you to to illustrate this, but but let me share with you my favorite. Let me share with you one that is personal and, and, and very, very much a part of who we are as a church. Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching the very first gospel message in, in, in as a result of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, the pouring out of the Spirit. 120 believers are, are prophesying and they're speaking and people, thousands of people are gathering and they're hearing these prophecies and these, these proclamations of God's majesty and His beauty and His preciousness. They're hearing it in their own languages and, they, and there's this miraculous thing happening and they begin to try to explain it away and, and, and Peter says, no, 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 no. It's, these people aren't drunk. There's no excuse for this except that they have now received the Spirit. And then he begins to preach. He begins to preach the very first gospel proclamation, the first very very first gospel message after Jesus ascends into heaven and the Holy Spirit is poured out. He preaches to thousands of people. And out of that message, 3,000 people come to believe. 3,000 in a day come to believe. They're baptized. And, and, and then in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, we get a picture of what happens because of what that sermon brought, because of what the gospel did. And it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's, that's the same as saying they devoted themselves to the word of God and the fellowship. That's not fellowship as in church events like fellowship. That is the people. That's the church. They devoted themselves to the church and the breaking of bread and the prayers. That's the the, the religious practice that we have that goes on between one another. The, The observance of sacraments and praying and worshiping together. And the result, it says in verse 33, all came upon every soul. Just imagine a people that are so devoted, that love one another so completely that an awe falls on us. That awe of God moves us. Maybe sometimes I wonder if if the American church doesn't sense God working because we don't love one another. We're too busy loving so many other things. We're not devoted to the Word of God that bears out the love of God, that bears out the devotion to one another. So we miss the awe of God. Maybe. Just a theory. Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This was radical. It was radical. It it looked so different even in this culture that's so communal, that was so connected, that life was so close. It was a radical difference. The possessions belong to families. Possessions belong to people. And they weren't getting rid of them for other people. But these people, they loved one another. They were so devoted to one another. They were divesting themselves of earthly goods to make sure that people's needs were met. They were tangibly, sincerely loving one another. They cared so deeply. They meant so much to one another. And who were they loving? brothers and sisters. And the result of that, you could go on and read, and, and, and I won't read the whole thing, but I'll skip, skip down. It says, praising God. This is a result of all that was going on. Praising God. 
and having favor with all the people. So, so here is they're loving one another as, as they're striving to love one another so completely, so sincerely, so earnestly, so passionately, so devotedly, as they're loving one another that way. The whole community looks on. All the people look on and they find favor with them and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, we, we fight so hard to love the world. And please do not hear me saying that God doesn't call us to love the world. He does. He calls us to love our enemies for crying out loud. But there is a primary love that is to be given to the people of God. And the world needs us evangelizing, but as much as they need us evangelizing and preaching and proclaiming the gospel, they need to see a church who's willing to love one another. They need both. Your part in evangelism may not be the proclamation. It may be the loving of the people of God so that the world can see the blessings and benefits of the gospel in tangible form. A healthy church family. A healthy church is a family in Christ and has been given love for one another so they can give love to one another. Let's pray.